I remember meeting Tim Ferriss when he first did this subdermal implant just to track the actual, you know, caloric burn. I was like, that's pretty extreme. But for him, it was a really cool tool. I mean, he was seeing the actual biofeedback of what, you know, was going in, went out, that kind of thing. And the techniques that guys like him and Dave Asprey and others came up with made a lot of sense to me. So I started playing with those ideas too. And it was really interesting. It was mostly around hacking your food. So I got to a point where I was like, you know, maybe a simpler way to do it is just a whitelist, blacklist of food. So I just assumed all food is bad, except I'm just going to eat 12 things. Superfood veggies that are super high in greens and fiber and basically lean proteins and just kind of played around with that. And it just was remarkable how effective and simple it was. But it was kind of like reprogramming your brain about how you think about food. It's more like fuel than it is something you inherently have to enjoy every day. But you know, the, the side effect benefit I noticed, I stopped thinking about what to eat all the time. But I didn't have to make that choice anymore. It was almost by going on autopilot, you freed up all that mental bandwidth to worry about other stuff. You're just listening to Tim Chang. What's up, my friend, and welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, celebrity trainer and high-performance health coach, Ted Rice. This is a podcast for men and women who are looking to boost their energy and upgrade their health. So get ready to learn proven health, fitness, and mindset strategies to unlock your full potential. And I'm back again with another Best of Legendary Life episode. I hope you're enjoying these. I hope you enjoyed Peter Sage's last episode. That was such an inspirational episode. I received a lot of feedback from it, so I'm glad you enjoyed it, especially the newer listeners who haven't gone that far back into the archives of Legendary Life. And I'm back again with another one of my favorite interviews, and it's with Tim Chang. Now, Tim is the managing director of the Mayfield Fund, which is a venture capital fund based in Silicon Valley. In fact, it's one of the earliest venture capital funds ever. And he's here today to talk about technology and how the exponential increase in digital technology is starting to merge with how we live our lives and how that affects our health, our wellness, and more. And I really love this interview because it was a chance to sit down with a Silicon Valley executive and get an insight into what they're doing out there, how they're living their lives, and what they're using to stay on top of their game. Because as you might imagine, the competition is fierce out there. Technology, businesses, getting funding, getting your company to grow and scale and all those things. And the Mayfield Fund, it's invested in companies like Atari and more recently Lyft, as well as so many others, I think 600 in total. But Tim's also here to talk about his personal journey and what health and wellness mean to him and what he uses to stay mentally sharp, to stay on top of his game, to perform at his peak. So you're going to hear about that. And what's really cool about Tim is he also gets very real and personal and talks about some of the imposter syndrome that he's dealt with, some of the feelings of failure, even though he's a highly successful executive from Silicon Valley. I mean, those are the type of people we only hear about on like movies and TV shows, but yet he's here, he's talking about his real experience and how he sometimes doesn't feel so great and what he does to get past that and more. It's an incredible interview. You're going to learn a lot as well as be entertained by this episode with Tim Chang. Before we get to it, I just want to tell you, if you're looking for the best free supplement guide around, I want you to go to www.legendarylifepodcast.com forward slash supplement guide. I have put together something I feel is incredible, and I think you're going to feel it's incredible too. It's free, and it goes into the best science-based supplements around. So if you've been wondering, what are the best supplements for sleep? What are the best nootropic supplements? What are the best supplements for anxiety? What are the best supplements for building muscle and workout performance? Well, I go into all of them, and it's all for free you can get the guide at www.legendarylifepodcast.com forward slash supplement guide. That's it. Let's get to the interview with Tim Chang. 
Tim, you're the managing director of the Mayfield Fund, a Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm that invests in early stage technology. You're a thought leader in the areas of quantified self, behavioral social science-led design and gamification. And you're also voted to have the best abs in Silicon Valley by BuzzFeed, in addition to playing a bass in a band. Man, how do you describe what it is that you do? Well, for my day job, I'm very lucky that I get to work in a place as interesting as Silicon Valley, and it's literally listening to 500 to 1,000 business plan pitches a year. And with that, you get a tremendous amount of learning from all different industries, all different walks of life. That part is fascinating intellectually. But for all my other hobbies and activities, I realized one day that it's a lot more fun if you don't have to separate work and play. If you can be a little more holistic and integrated about it, why not bring in all your personal interests into what you do as well? They all actually feed into each other as opposed to having to compartmentalize your life. And I think Silicon Valley is filled with people, polymaths, who have lots of different interests. And when you get them talking about what they do in their spare time, man, it's fascinating. And you get really inspired by that too. Yeah. And would you say that this blurring of the lines between work and play, I immediately yeah. think of Silicon Valley. I think of Google and the nap pods yeah. and how they try to design the architecture of the building to create flow, how like there's this encouragement we were talking before of going to things like Burning Man. Can you talk right. about what it is that you feel makes Silicon Valley so special for someone like myself or yeah. someone listening who's never been there? I think it's the culture of experimentation and that encouragement to try everything, hack anything. This whole hacker mentality is a big central tenet, I think, of what everybody does here. You see it in Google where they encourage these so-called 20% projects, meaning one day a week, go work on whatever you want. Chances are something incredible like Gmail was a 20% project reportedly, right? That allows you to experiment and play without risk or fear of failure. It also helps that people accept failure here as learning. It's not this big black mark on who you are to go try something and not necessarily have it hit. In fact, many of the top founders here they had a bunch of flops before, say, their third, fourth, or fifth startup became really big. And if the culture didn't encourage that experimentation, you wouldn't have had that, right? So I think that's a big part of it. Second, I think that uh, you have a lot of folks who have, like I said, lots of different interests. And this, there's a lot of value created in so-called heterogeneity of networks and interests. So, for example, if you're really deep in just financial services and you only hang out with people in financial services, you'll probably all know the same people, know the same stuff. But if your social graph can, in, includes people from wildly different walks of life, like astronomy or clean tech or whatnot, it's actually those interconnections between loosely associated networks that creates tremendous value because the shared learnings that cross those networks is where the really cool stuff happens. It's almost like the musical equivalent of a mashup between genres that normally would never coexist together. Yeah, that's a cool analogy, mashups. And that immediately brings up this idea of pattern recognition, pattern recognition, excuse yeah. me, where you're in one industry and you talk to someone from another, you start seeing similarities and perhaps how yeah. something you may learn from someone else's field may apply yep. to your own. That's so cool. Yep. And you play bass in a band. Talk a little bit about that. I saw you slap in the bass. The audio wasn't great uh, on the video, but I was like, oh, he's, he looks like he has some chops. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to be a musician. One of my dreams, like a lot of people want to be a rock star when you grow up or an astronaut. But you know what I found is for a while I did pursue music professionally. That actually sucked all the joy out of it. When you're on the salary and having to play, you know, Tracy Chapman for the 20th time in a row on a cruise ship or whatever, you're like, wow, this sucks. I never thought I would hate music. But this does speak to this culture of having side projects. And so music has remained an active side project for me my, my whole life. And even though it's not the day job, it's actually more fun as a side project, a 20% project, if you will. And what I find with that is if you could take something you're passionate about, if it doesn't have to be your living, you don't have to make money off of it. That reduces a lot of the pressure on what you get out of it. And you might be able to operate more out of joy from doing it. So these bands I do, you know, because we don't need to make money from it, we can use it as an opportunity to create or, you know, our business models to perform at fundraiser galas or, or big events where we can make a difference. And that's even better than you're jamming and helping people out. But if it was my day job, I'd be worried about, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my mortgage? Am I going to make it to the billboard charts? That kind of stuff, right? And so I think, again, back to that power of these side projects, I would encourage everybody to have one. Sometimes your passion is better served as a side project than your full-time day job. 
That's such a powerful point. And by the way, I didn't say this, but I'm a bass player as well. And I did kind of pursue live music for a little while. It was very stressful. And uh, I was a personal trainer, still am doing that to to some degree in in addition to the other things I do. But I would find myself drinking too much. It just took the fun right out of it. And in fact, to the point where people ask me like, hey, what what music are you listening to? It's like, "Eh, I kind of burnt myself out on that. So that's such a great point. These side projects and taking the pressure off yourself, but allowing yourself some artistic, creative endeavor to perhaps have some fun and expand your mind. Well, Tim, you didn't become a rock star but in the traditional sense, but you kind of are a rock star in the Silicon Valley VC firm that you're in. Can you talk about how you got to this place? What was your story like? I know we mentioned, we talked about role-playing games and video games before and how that's led to some of your interests, but where did you grow up? How did your hero's journey unfold for you? Oh, I love that that metaphor, hero's journey. I'm a really big believer in that. I grew up mostly in Michigan, of all places, in the, in the Midwest, and you know, product of an academic family, very highly tiger parented. You know, I remember coming home and being, "Mom, I got 97 on the chemistry test," and her response is, "What happened to the other three points?" So oh, you know, it was no. a very demanding existence. But uh, my inspiration was, you know, the role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons or or Ultima on the computer. I'd program these games. I'd always read about them. Same with comic books and superheroes and their origin stories and listening to a lot of rock music. And those were my hobbies and passions through school. You know, I did the uh, Tiger Parented Recommended Course of Engineering. So I did electrical engineering and minored in Japanese and robotics and stuff like that and had the chance to go to start my career in Japan where I was a automotive engineer, test driver, and then switched over to marketing. I was recruited by Gateway Computer as a product manager. And all throughout, I was also pursuing music and acting and all this other stuff on the side, uh, which turned not to be, uh, I think, a um, blessing later on. But then I was an MBA student at Stanford, so I got back to the U.S. and then recruited into the venture capital world. And one thing I remember in the investment world was thinking to myself, well, I could kind of chase what's hot, like, you know, semiconductors or security or whatever. But I kept thinking, wow, why not invest in stuff I really like? I was lucky to be able to start investing into things like games and mobile devices, stuff I like to geek out on. And I found some success there with companies like Playdom and NG Moco and others. And even fitness and health was a side project of mine that I got to parlay into an investment area. It's kind of an early believer in body hacking and quantified self. It was more of a whim. My story there, I was flying through the Hong Kong airport in a business trip layover and I picked up one of the localized magazines and and I noticed wow, there's very few, you know, Asian underwear models. I wonder why. And and I kind of thought to myself, that'd be an interesting challenge. Could, could I get myself into that kind of shape? I'd never exercised before. wasn't really a fitness enthusiast or anything, but I just took it as a challenge to kind of try it out. And so I started learning about exercising and, and weight training. But then the really interesting part is, as you learn more about it, you find it's almost 70, 80% more about nutrition than it is about working out. And then as you go down that rabbit hole, you find it's the original body hackers were bodybuilders. They were so precise about every calorie. They'd measure their food. They know exactly how to cut so that your body fat would be optimized for that very hour that you're actually on stage competing, right? And so I was really interested in those techniques, but without having to go quite as extreme. I'm kind of fundamentally lazy and I'm super busy, so I don't have time to spend in the gym. And that's when I kind of got turned on to the quantified self community. You know, it was Gary Wolf, Kevin Kelly, all those guys. And it's kind of what happens when geeks, data-minded, you know, gadget people start thinking about fitness. And so again, it's that mashup between engineers and then health and, and the techniques they come up with are well, just track and A-B test everything. There's this theory in control engineering, which I majored in, which is you cannot control that which is not observable, meaning mm-hmm. measurable. If you can't measure it, you can't optimize it can't optimize it, you can't hack it. And so I think step one, they were thinking, let's measure this all. So I remember meeting Tim Ferriss when he first did this subdermal implant just to track the actual you know, caloric burn. I was like, that's pretty extreme. But for him, it was a really cool tool. I mean, he was seeing the actual biofeedback of what you know was going in, went out, that kind of thing. And the techniques that guys like him and Dave Asprey and others came up with made a lot of sense to me. So I started playing with those ideas too. And it was really interesting. It was mostly around hacking your food. So I got to a point where I was like, you know, maybe a simpler way to do it is just a whitelist, blacklist of food. So I just assumed all food is bad, except I'm just going to eat 12 things. 
superfood veggies that are super high in greens and fiber and basically lean proteins and just kind of played around with that. And it just was remarkable how effective and simple it was. But it was kind of like reprogramming your brain about how you think about food. It's more like fuel than it is something you inherently have to enjoy every day. But, you know, the, the side effect benefit I noticed, I stopped thinking about what to eat all the time. But I didn't have to make that choice anymore. It was almost by going on autopilot, you freed up all that mental bandwidth to worry about other stuff. And then you kind of apply that to exercise as well. I, I found that sort of high intensity interval weight training with very little rest between, you know, sets was super effective. Get my workout done in 35 minutes. Also get the cardio in there, mix that with your food hacking, and you can kind of achieve underwear model shape pretty effortlessly and maintain it. Because, you know, I, when I first started working out, I thought it was like two hours in the gym, you know, yeah. four nights a week. And that just led to burnout, you know what I mean? And so it was more about sort of optimized lifestyle design than it was sort of this, uh, you know, unsustainable, crazy cranking away at these things or crash diets or stuff like that. I love hearing this perspective because so many people take an overly complicated approach and you just said, you just implemented these rules, a blacklist, a whitelist of foods you would eat, foods you wouldn't, and you based everything around lean protein and superfoods, as you said, it makes so much sense. And then doing high intensity interval training using resistance training exercises. Yeah, man, I love it. You just summed it up. All right, that's a wrap for, <laughs> for, for the, no, but, but it's so simple. I love the way you say that. To figure things out, how did technology play a role in getting yourself to, into that shape? And did you use any other type of exercise tools? What, what else did you do? When I started it, I had to go old school because we didn't have wearables or a lot of apps yet. I think it'd be even easier today because you've got wearables like the Fitbit, the Basis, other things where you can track heart rate and the calories out part. You've got food tracking apps like MyFitnessPal and others that help with the food tracking in. And even better, there's now on-demand meal services and subscription services that can do the meal prep for you at affordable price points. Companies like Power Supply and others where it's like a subscription, let's say paleo compliance meals if you wanted that at reasonable prices. So I'm finding there's more technologies available. Back when I started, it was much more manual. It was like Excel sheets, you know, of like what I ate and my workout and what calories out probably were. But there was one benefit of that because I was tracking all this stuff manually and mentally. It led to more mindfulness and awareness of what I was eating to the mm -hmm. point where I kind of knew that, um, oh, okay, that muffin's 450 calories or, oh, this uh, chicken breast is only X number of calories, 25 grams of protein. And after a few months of it, you kind of get to sixth sense of exactly how many calories you're consuming so that you can make mindful choices about what you eat. And even to this day, it's kind of fun because I kind of have a running meter every day. I've got my food budget and I kind of know, all right, I want to hit 100 grams of protein. I'm probably at 72. I'd like to hit, you know, 20 grams of fiber. I'm probably at 12 now. But it's almost like you always know this little gas gauge in the back of your head and you just make choices accordingly. And that it's kind of nice. So that was the benefit of doing the work of manual tracking is that you then internalize it in your head of knowing the relative caloric breakdowns, the grams of protein versus net carb versus fiber, all that kind of thing. But I do think technologies today make it easier to do that. And that's the benefit of the technology part, make it a little bit more seamless. My hypothesis where this goes, today, even with the technologies, you got to do some work yourself. Maybe the right model is that the, the device you wear, the apps you use, who's looking at it and controlling it might be your personal coach. And that person might be, you know, kind of virtual. They could be distributed. They could live over in New York, even though you're in California. And uh, someday it might be part AI. So you wouldn't know if your, your coach is AI or human or it's a blend of both, but I'm kind of a believer in outsourcing some of these decisions. Again, this notion of optimizing your life. Hey, I mean, you have a fitness trainer because they know how to manage your physical activity life better than you can. You probably have a financial planner who can manage your money better than you can. Why wouldn't you have like a, a personal nutritionist or food planner that makes those choices for you? Again, removing mental load. I love that. Yeah. Take out the decision fatigue, the willpower, just follow the rules that someone else kind of puts into play for you. And you can have all that, that mental energy to focus elsewhere, like building your business or your relationships with your family. Great, great stuff, Tim. If you were to do it today yep. with all the tech stuff that you know, with all the 
hacks that you know, yep. how would you do it differently? What I would do differently is I'd use devices more often. So I'd get that data feed. Um, what what device would you use? So I, I'm a little partial to basis because I helped to found that company. They were one of the first wearables that did 24-7 heart rate monitoring, and they still mm. do it quite well. These days, there are several solutions out there, but basis or anything, you know, kind of equivalent to that. So you get your heart rate. You understand what your, you know, kind of resting metabolism, those sorts of things are. I would also use, these days, I also use one for mental state tracking, and that's things like the Muse headset. So the, I'm trying to start a, more of a meditation practice these days called a quantified mind, right? And so the Muse headset can do some pretty interesting readings of your brainwaves. And for example, when you first try to do things like meditation, you're usually sitting there and you're either wondering, what the heck am I doing? Am I doing this right? Or you're falling asleep. And what's really nice about these devices, that biofeedback, it's almost like training wheels to help you onboard faster, to just give you a sense of nudge you in the right direction if you're doing anything right at all, right? Because otherwise, a lot of times, I mean, gosh, you could work out in the gym for months before you see definition of a two-pack or something, right? Mm -hmm. Or you meditate for months and not know if you're doing it right. So the role of technology is to provide some real-time feedback. And like I said, they're really good training wheels as you onboard yourself into these new behaviors. And so you like Muse for the, the meditation yeah, there's other devices that are comparable too, but that's almost like Fitbit or, or basis for your brainwaves. And that's super interesting if, for example, if you have a practice that's in the morning or in the evening of, say, mindfulness or, or focus or meditation. The next generation of devices that are coming on the market now are biofeedback as, uh, as well. So think of, you remember the thing that would stimulate your abs that you'd wear and it would like shock sure. your abs? You're going to see that even for your brain now. So you've got companies like Think, Halo, others. They'll even do electro-stim, transcranial, et cetera, on your, on your brain. So imagine you're practicing piano or learning some task, and you'll use that biofeedback in your brain. Theoretically, accelerates the hardening of those neural channels as you're learning a new skill, theoretically accelerating your mastery of that. That's yeah. definitely the wild, wild west of body hacking, though. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I haven't experimented with a lot of this. I, I've more experimented with the supplementation, the the biochemical yes, route, yep. and the smart drugs. Yep, exactly. I haven't tried smart drugs because, in general, you know, I had some Adderall that someone gave me. I didn't want to take it, and I don't respond well to them. Although I do want to ask you about entheogens a bit later. But what you're talking about is so interesting. And as I told you before we hopped on, I read this article that you wrote, The Wellness Revolution, how old school wisdom is meeting cutting edge technology. And you said something so fascinating in it. You delineated or you talked about how the 80s were about bodybuilding and then how each decade we've kind of moved on. Can you can you talk about that and and give your perspective? Absolutely. So I think, I think a lot about health and wellness. It started with first the body, right? Fitness. I remember how Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jane Fonda, all these folks brought public awareness of exercise and bodybuilding. Until then, if you went to the gym regularly, you're considered a freak, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Now it's yep. so commonplace, you're weird if you don't work out, right? But it took the 80s, the 90s to get to that level. Then we've seen a groundswell of interest in things like mental fitness, things like lumosity, brain training, and then the rise of meditation is definitely sort of a whole new movement these days where it's becoming much more commonplace to focus on mindfulness and meditation. That's equivalent to, say, your emotional well-being, even maybe your spiritual well-being, if you will. And so uh, I've been really fascinated by how technology accelerates all of these things, but as, as well as mass cultural acceptance of these things. Why wouldn't you have the equivalent of health and wellness for body, brain, and sort of emotion or spirit, if you will? Similarly, would we have quantified self, which focused on the body signals? Would you have quantified mind? Would you have quantified emotion? All those things too that would pop up, right? The same techniques we used for body mastery. Why would you apply that internally for that sort of internal quantified self? Uh, So I'm a big believer that's uh, kind of where we're headed. Then as I got more into this, I'd study sort of what did ancient cultures do? And it fascinated me that they used quote-unquote technology that was available to them. They usually used elements from their environments as a form of 
training for, I guess you call it ego death or, or self-awareness building, expanded consciousness. The Lakota tribe would use, uh, you know, sun dancing. They had the sun around them. The uh, other tribes down in the rainforest would find certain vines and they would concoct brews like uh, ayahuasca. That was a form of technology, natural found, but it was a technology, I would say, in that sense. It was a vehicle for going internal and self-discovery, self-awareness. Meditation is another form of a behavioral technology, if you will. These are all different kind of technologies. And Mankind has been searching and using these technologies for, gosh, millennia before. It's just that my hope is with current technologies like sensors and big data, artificial intelligence, you can accelerate, you know, the the ancient practices, same tenets and fundamentals, but you can maybe augment them in terms of the learning curve, make them more accessible, remove some of the kind of, you know, voodoo or quasi-religious context around them, make them more mass acceptable, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's really cool how you bring that up. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought I was living out the 60s when I was in high school, read Timothy Leary and Terrence McKenna and all these other people. And so I know what you mean when you talk about ego death and when you're talking about what these ancient tribes used to do to get some self-awareness. Can you talk a little bit about what that means, ego death, and why you view it's important, especially for people who are listening to this podcast. Okay, I guess this is where we go out on a limb a bit more, but here's kind of where I've come to in my thinking of things. It's sort of abstract, but kind of simple in one sense. My learning is that I think in any given moment, there's only two underlying emotional motivations for any course of action or how you react to anything in life or the world. And it's either sort of fear or, if you will, love and empathy, right? There's basically only two modes of operation. One is usually triggered, I think, from the so-called monkey mind or the reptilian brain. That is more the sort of the ego-driven one. It's usually um, sort of impulse-driven, right? It's that fight-or-flight mentality. It's uh, biology-driven that need to be able to have resources so that you can survive, so that you can thrive, so that you procreate. And then the flip side of that is more, I think, driven out of, for lack of a better term, love or acceptance or empathy. And that is more about acceptance or letting go of things. And I would say sort of the root struggle of the human existence is walking that fine line between sort of operating out of ego or fear and more empathy and and maybe acceptance or letting go. I know it sounds a bit Zen, but that that is kind of uh, the two modes we're always operating at all times. And so all these practices, anything that gets you into flow state is essentially a practice of, we'll call it ego death, which is submerging the ego, the self-focused, you know, oh no, fear-driven part of you, that uh, transcending that sort of monkey mind and almost losing yourself. If you've ever experienced a flow state activity, it could be racing a superbike or so focused on, on rock climbing that you forget all about everything else. It could be when you're playing music, meditating, there's theoretically anything can be a flow state activity. Uh, everything can be a meditation. What you're striving for is that point where you're so engrossed in what you're doing, so present in that moment, you actually forget about who you are, right? And all these different vehicles are ways to try to achieve that so-called ego death. And in those moments, you're more present than you've ever been. You might feel more connected to others, to sort of the, the universe around you. And one big Silicon Valley thing that's kind of interesting is I know a lot of friends or consciousness hackers now they call themselves. They're trying to figure out, is this a state anybody can attain? And are there programmatic ways to let anyone attain this? And so they're creating a cocktail of different technologies and practices, creating almost like a survey-like course for anyone to be able to experience these things. And, and they're almost on the verge, they could say, I guarantee you, within a couple of months of trying these different things, you will know what it's like to achieve this ego death or non-duality persistent state or expanded consciousness or whatever you want to call it. Are you talking about Stephen Collar and the Flow Genome Project or That's someone else? There's okay. With the Transforming Technologies Labs, there's Nicole Bradford with the Seeker course. I love it because they're bringing scientific geek rigor to something that might have otherwise been viewed as sort of like, you know, hoodoo voodoo kind of, you know. New agey nonsense. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, Steven's been on this show a couple of times. I love what he's about and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's idea of flow. And absolutely, we're all about that here. And, And it keeps coming up because it's such an important 
part of being happier, developing confidence. And like you said, ego death, where you just feel happier. And so you're less that monkey mind person, less that reptilian brain fear driven person. And I agree with you with what you said. I mean, writing that line and too many of us live in that zone where we're constantly in fear because what we see in the news and the economy and the terrorism and the this and the that, and it's just nonstop. And we, we don't know how to get a hold of it. And everything that you're talking about, Tim, is on how to get in control of ourselves, how to get awareness of ourselves, our behaviors, our thoughts, and all the ways we can do that. So it's just cool. And you said something really cool in one of your talks. You said, after I got a six pack, I started wondering what would it look like to have a mental six pack or an emotional six pack or a spiritual six pack? And I think that's such a profound question because even people who are really into health and fitness probably don't think beyond that. I look good in the mirror and I I hit that wall. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. That idea, the mental, emotional, spiritual six-pack? Absolutely. You, you know what I found? To kind of get to lean body mass to get a, a six-pack, it was effectively a subtractive approach. That was my whole take on the whitelist, blacklist of foods. So then my logic extended, say, gosh, could you take a similar focus and sort of um, subtractive approach for other things. What would that be like for your mental life? Would it be stripping away all negative thoughts or, you know, kind of decisions that would weigh you down, take up mental bandwidth or distracting factors, all the noise versus the signal. And and I think that's actually the practice of what meditation is. It's stripping, learning to be able to strip away the noise, right? And so that is similar to this, this subtractive approach. And then I kind of thought about emotionally too, would it be the removal of things that, that cause negative emotions or drain positive energy from you? Can you have the equivalent blacklist, whitelist approach in all aspects of your life from physical to internal and emotional and spiritual, maybe that would be a similar approach towards achieving this theoretical six-pack on all those different states. Case in point, a lot of geniuses throughout history, Steve Jobs, Einstein, they would only have the same outfit because they found it removed mental bandwidth, you know, load to decide what to wear. Just like I don't really think about when I grocery shop, I'd have my 12 things, right? So how far can you take that practice on all different parts of your life? How much can you outsource in your life so you're just focused on the things you're good at that you can remove mental load, emotional load, all those sorts of things and strip away stuff so that you're really finally optimized. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, everybody wants the secret for productivity and having more time in life. And you just said it. It's not about what most people try to do. It's it's just outsource it. Follow a workout program. Have 12 foods that you eat. Have this blacklist, whitelist that you follow. Yeah, so cool. And you mentioned Muse earlier as the way to get into meditation because I'll be honest, I can do yoga. I've done martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a long time. I found that got me into a very meditative state uh, in that flow state. But if I had to just sit there and go in, <laughs> you know, just meditate, I couldn't it's do fun. it. So you mentioned Muse. I'll make sure that's on the show notes. Is there any other technology or how yeah. do you meditate, Tim? I started with an app called Headspace. It's very popular Headspace. apps. apps sure. store, try it out. There's similar apps like Calm.com. And a really cool one is called Insight Timer. That one's interesting because it's a social network of other people meditating. So believe it or not, it's even more powerful when you meditate with others, even if it's virtual and distributed. There's something to that, that social cohort notion. It's like a support group, if you will. But these apps are a great way to learn meditation in an accessible way. Uh, you know, They're guided with great narrative. If you combine that with devices like Amuse, then it's like a one-two punch because you get that biofeedback. You can actually see, oh my gosh, this box breath exercise is working. You know, and, and then you've got this nice, simple, guided, easily digestible app as well. So that's why I'm so excited. These things are becoming less and less esoteric, less voodoo hoodoo, like we said, you know, and, and becoming more mass market consumable. Yeah, I had a, a neuroscientist Adam Ghazali, and he was oh, talking yeah, was about... Awesome. He's, a, he's a good buddy. It's, it's the same thing. He's using video games to achieve this, right? Very cool. Talk about gamification literally, right? Like yeah. you're playing a video game to get better. So I would love to dive into some of your success habits. You sound like when you told your story at the beginning, 
you had this pressure on you from your parents, you did what they wanted you to do to a certain point, but then you went on your own path and you ended up in Silicon Valley. You're the managing director of the Mayfield Fund now. And you seem like you're just having the time of your life. You're blurring the line between work and play. And I want to know, like, what helped you get there? What success um, habits or morning rituals do you have that you can share with me and the listeners so that we can take our game up to the next absolutely. level? I think the first confession I have to make is it's definitely not easy for me every day. I still frequently battle depression and self-doubt. Here in Silicon Valley, when you're surrounded with people who are not just doing big things, but literally changing the world, I mean, Elon Musk and all these folks, it's really easy to get caught up in keeping up with the Zuckerbergs. And when... <laughs> When yeah. more than half your friends don't have to work anymore because they were early at Facebook or whatever and, and have already cashed out and you're still working really hard, you know, you, you face a lot of self-doubt. It sounds really stupid when I talk about it now, but when you're in the middle of it, surrounded by incredible people, you start wondering, like, am I, am I an imposter? You get that imposter syndrome, right? Or what am I doing wrong? Why is everybody else ahead? And so, again, this is the ego speaking, but I've had moments, I still have moments where I get caught up in that. And I think my favorite thing to do is to try to get out of that through things like these flow state or ego death activities. Music for me is one of those things. I still do my workouts every day. One of the reasons I, I really like working out, actually, it's the only thing I found in life where results correlate directly to what you put in. Everything else, investment, work activities, doing your startup, it's not guaranteed success is there. But at least in terms of your physical self, it's kind of nice that what you get out is what you put into it exactly. You know, and so that's the one thing that you can actually have full control over in your life. So that's my one attempt to have a little bit of control in this otherwise chaotic, you know, kind of randomness that's Silicon Valley. The other thing that I found, too, is there's that old saying, you are the average of the five people you hang out with. The five people most of us hang out with tends to be circumstance. It's like our buddies from college or your coworkers or who you live with in your apartment building or whatever it is. But a really interesting thought is you can hack the five people you hang out with. You can actually engineer for the five people you want to hang out with. And by doing so, you're up-leveling your game simply by who you hang out with. You can actually network with those you want to be around that'll inspire you and pull you up. So I've managed to find a lot of folks that uh, are seekers, adventurers, very accomplished, but don't buy into the game of just status and money and press mentions and all that sort of thing. These are folks that We'll go to things like Burning Man that don't take themselves too seriously, but really work and play really hard. So surround yourself with those kinds of people and they will actually affect the energy of your daily existence. They'll inspire you. They'll bring connections, ideas, opportunities you hadn't thought of. And uh, hopefully they'll open up your horizons as well. You know, it, it's funny. I never thought I'd be a stereotypical Burning Man person, but it's become an interesting shorthand for people I want to hang out with because it represents a certain amount of open-mindedness. And to me, that's been really important. The um, ability to think out of the box, not be too judgmental on things, always ask questions like, why not? Instead of why, right? And yeah, you're going to encounter some far off things like people who are trying entheogenics or psychedelics or things like that. But, you know, I think the more interesting, bold ideas you're surrounded by, the more it opens up your mind. And then that gives you opportunity to create these interesting cross connections, your chance to remix something of different elements that haven't been done before. Yeah, so powerful. So taking care of yourself with exercise, with hacking the five people that you hang out with. And thanks for sharing that that you struggle with some depression, some self-doubt, some imposter syndrome. I mean, we all do to some level, and it's good to hear someone of your level of success talk about that because a lot of people just keep up that persona. And that's what I love about the Silicon Valley vibe. It's like, hey, we're all trying to be better people. This isn't just about putting on the, the persona of someone who's successful. This is about openness, like you mentioned in Burning Man. I have not gone, but I, I really want to go. It's just you know so cool to hear that and, and important for everyone to know that no matter where you get to on your level of success, you still have to upkeep your mental fitness, if you will, your emotional fitness. So thank you so much for sharing that. I'd also like a little bit of 
insider secrets to Silicon Valley's best do for high performance. I watched CNN Money Special, the CNN Money Special on sex, drugs, and Silicon Valley. Tim Ferriss was on there talking about his billionaire friends microdosing with LSD. Dave Asprey was on there, who's been on the show a couple of times, talking about smart drugs and other things as well, polygamy and all this other stuff. Can you talk about what some of your secrets is? Do you do you use nootropics and theogenics, smart drugs? How about some of your successful friends? Can you give us an inside perspective into those high sure. performance secrets? A lot of the the body hackers are also now sort of neuro hackers with the, with smart drugs, and there there are supplements widely available now. Like Dave Asprey's got some from his shop on BulletproofExec.com. I'll take the Alpha Brain Stack, but I've also been trying to test out some of the other nootropics out there. You've got the Paracetams and all sorts of others. Tim Ferriss blogs about it quite a bit. There are the um, edgier ones that are the prescription ones that you can take that are a little harder core. I've tried some of those before. For example, if you need to be really sharp in the board meeting after a red eye, you know. Provigil could do some interesting things, but I'm trying to find ones that are a little more sustainable that you can take daily. So that's why it's been more sort of the, some of the nootropic stacks, the alpha brain, some of those others. So you take and, alpha brain from on it. Is that the one yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, and there's several others. I'm trying Neutrobox is an interesting startup that does a subscription curated kit of these. So um, that's one worth uh, testing out. This is definitely the wild, wild west, though, because none of these are uh, FDA supported. They're, they're more experimental supplements. And so um, it probably still requires a lot of A-B testing personally to see which ones work for you and which ones don't. There are a lot of the... Uh, ed- of sort of more aggressive antioxidants like oxaloacetate that, that I'll take. Of course, you know, there's plenty of the, the standard resveratrol and other, you know, green tea and other antioxidants that are, that are fun to try to slow down aging. You can also be pretty aggressive on things like vitamin D, DHA, all the standard supplements there that are just good for your cardiovascular health and, and other metabolism boosters. Lately, I've been really obsessed with the microbiome. So if you haven't heard of them yet, there's a startup called Ubiome. You can order a test kit, they'll mail to you, and you can uh, send in, you know, a a little sample, but they'll actually sequence your gut bacteria. The theory there is the gut bacteria that you have is basically your little army of uh, organisms that can break down and process different things. If you have an imbalance there, you might not be able to eat certain foods. For example, you might be celiac intolerant. You might, after, uh, you know, kind of an antibiotic carpet bombing, might not have the right gut flora to be processing all the things that you should. So that's yet another form of internal quantified self, right? Why not quantify the gut bacteria you have? You might learn some interesting things from there. And gosh, what a great way to actually close the feedback loop on the pro and prebiotics you take. It'd be, it, it's a great way to see, is that stuff working? Do I have the proper you know, uh, heterogeneity in my gut flora? Because that is one of the things that we don't realize. We love this whole antibiotic culture, but if you get sick and you get a broad spectrum antibiotic, that's like carpet bombing your gut flora. You know? So uh, that's another thing I know some people are looking at. For the fitness side, DEXA scans have become pretty popular for folks. You can now find clinics that'll just do DEXA scans pretty cheaply out of pocket. And that's a great way to look at your BMI and, and your relative body fat and those sorts of things. It's a like a quantified self-snapshot, right? To see your, your body. On the mindfulness side, multi-day silent retreats are becoming very popular for folks to do. It's kind of like a detox. Multi-day retreat. silent retreats, no phone, no talking? Nothing. It's wow. Friends who've done it, they say it's the hardest thing to do that they've ever tried. Far more than even a tough mutter, an Iron Man. <laughs> uh, there's Absolutely. this. Absolutely. I'm right? thinking right. I'm. I've done some crazy stuff, and I will do some crazy stuff. That sounds like uh, the. Uh, that sounds like the pinnacle of challenge for me, man. It is. I'm. I'm trying to work myself up to be able to do that because I know ten minutes in, I'll be itching for my phone, right? And, um, <laughs> Absolutely. There's this wonderful saying: "Is all of mankind's problems stem from his inability to sit in a room quietly by himself?" So this is the ultimate torture test. But um, I've had friends do seven day retreats, and they say by day five, they're in a state that's as powerful as any psychedelic trip in terms of insights and self awareness and that sort of thing. But um, that is something very powerful for folks to do, especially if you're battling the pressures of launching or running a startup and you've gotten all those sort of you know, things on depression. So that's a form of in mental detox that people will do. A lot of folks I know have daily rituals. One I'm trying to institute more is 
first 30 minutes of your morning when you wake, great time to do a mindfulness practice as well as micro journaling or, or writing things out. It's when your brain is most fertile with ideas. So is that the time to be writing things out or working your vision board or whatever it is, you know, that unadulterated time instead of your first impulse is check social media or check email. Don't pollute that time. Maybe preserve that time for other things, you know, to be more optimized. Wow. So that's an entire laundry list of ways to upgrade your life. I'll make sure I have the links up to some of them. And while you were talking, I I also thought I had such a reaction when you said silent retreat, multi-day silent retreats. And I started thinking, why was my reaction like that? And if you were listening right now and you had that same reaction, because that that like freaked me Tim, not much freaks me out, man. <laughs> I live in Miami Beach. I've, I've had a lot of interesting experiences in my life, but that like, whoa, I'll have to think about that. I've, I've got to do some introspection after speaking with you, but thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your insights, your experience, your knowledge, and most importantly, your time. I really appreciate that. Is, is there anywhere you would like people to go to or reach out to you, perhaps follow you on Medium or? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got a, a Medium account and um, my Twitter is Time Change. It's just my name with ease. And I'm frequently speaking at different conferences, but really interested to hear what different hacks people are coming up with and cross-connecting them. So, yeah, I always appreciate the chance for folks to reach out and, and share ideas and cross-pollinate things. Excellent. And uh, I said that in particular because you're just here sharing your story. You're not promoting anything in particular other than the upgrading of consciousness and a better world. So thank you so much for that. And I'd love to finish off with, I I usually ask for some inspirational words uh, from the guest on the show. But for, for you, Tim, I'd like to ask you, what are you excited about? One of the things I love about you so much from watching your talks and reading your articles is that you have such a positive outlook on technology, where the human race is going. So if you could finish off with some words of or, or some of what you're excited about, then we'll wrap things up, man. Yeah, this one's a bit out there too. There's two factors I think are going to change our, our species overall within our lifetime soon, and that's the rise of artificial intelligence. You've been hearing all about that. But also this synthetic biological breakthrough called uh, CRISPR-Cas9. CRISPR, I think it's, uh, if I recall it correctly, it's uh, clusters of regularly interspaced palindromic short repeats. But the, what it really means is the ability to edit biology just like you could do word processing in Google Docs, that simple. You can edit genes. And what it gets to is you can completely swap out you know, uh, uh, traits within a genetic uh, sequence. And combining this with the power of computation and AI, we're going to get to the point soon where you can sequence full genomes, understand the blueprint for biology, you'll be able to edit it and then print it back out. And at that point, we've essentially overcome we've transcended our 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 biology i mean that's sort of the holy grail in many in many ways and i know people are terrified about this because they're going to say oh my god we're going to create the zombie apocalypse or this is going to be skynet but you know i have this kind of crazy view what if it's our duty as a species to evolve ourselves to the next rung of the ladder otherwise how would you feel if a chimpanzee were to say to you i am supposed to be the penultimate step on the evolutionary ladder right and when you combine all the the biological plus the artificial intelligence technologies i think we are standing on the gateway of our ability to create sort of this next gen collective consciousness and that that transcends you know kind of our human biology will create sort of the next level i don't know what we'll call it homo silica or whatever it is but uh, that could be a planetary wide phenomena at some point and then i think this will answer the age-old fermi's paradox why isn't there intelligent life out there my guess is other sufficiently advanced alien species realized long ago that you know just a meat-based existence ain't that efficient and they figured out how to transcend biology and just become a lot more energy and data-based and at that point maybe we'll join the club and realize that there's lots of other species out there and they're just waiting for us to kind of join this club (laughs) Wow, Tim, that's a powerful way to end this interview. Now I want to have you back on the show. But again, thank you so much for spending your time with us, sharing all this information, this knowledge, your perspectives, your story. I really appreciate it. I'm inspired. I've learned so much for you and I can't wait to connect again soon. 
that wraps up another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. My friend, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Tim Chang. It was just such an interesting and fascinating discussion with him to hear about how he views health and fitness and how he approaches it in his own life, as well as what he thinks the future is, what he thinks is on the horizon with this explosion of digital technology and how it's interfacing with our lives and health and wellness. It's just an incredible time to be alive. And I hope you enjoyed hearing his personal story about how he deals with imposter syndrome and feelings of failure. And I thought it was kind of funny when he mentioned, yeah, well, I, I'm successful, but I have friends who invested early in these companies and they no longer have to work. They're just living out their lives and doing whatever it is that they, they do with themselves. And I thought that was such an important point because no matter who we look at, there's always this backstory about how they feel about where they are in their lives and about the moments that they have of self-doubt. And I have that and you have that and Tim has that and everyone I'm sure has experienced that at one point or another, even if you're Steve Jobs or Richard Branson or anyone who you can think of that has a very high level of success or perhaps a big celebrity. And I hope you take those lessons with you today and with you through this week and try to implement them into your life. Before we wrap things up, I want to remind you, just like I did at the beginning of the episode, that I put together an epic free supplement guide. I'm talking the best free guide I've ever seen. And believe me, I've looked at a lot of supplement guides. I've read a lot of supplement information, a lot of blogs. And this is the best free, I should say science-based supplement guide because you know how I am. I've been down that road where I've spent a lot of money on supplements and there was a lot of hype. There were big claims about the supplement, but I didn't feel like it did anything for me other than make my bank account a little bit smaller. So I put together the best free science-based supplement guide around. So if you're looking for which nootropics work best, if you're looking for which supplements help you with your workout performance or help you build muscle, or if you're looking for supplements to help you sleep or reduce anxiety, I've got that all and more. And this is something that I'm going to be evolving and really making into a big monster. It's already a monster right now. But I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is I'm so proud of it and I know you're gonna love it too. You can get it for free at www.legendarylifepodcast.com forward slash supplement guide. So go and check that out if supplements are something that you're into. Have an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon.